0: the Admissions Office, your one-stop shop for expert advice on the smart way to get in. My name is Ellen and in each episode, I'll bring you an interview with a former admissions officer, a graduate with top of college, or an admissions expert. These interviews will take you inside the admissions office and will be full of behind the scenes knowledge, first-hand experiences, and application tips that will help you get into your dream school. If you'd like to chat with one of these experts, you can sign up for a free consultation at the link in the description of this episode. Today, we'll hear from Victoria Rosenthal-Madrid, Ingenious Preps Assistant Director of Marketing and a former international student, about how to gain admission to top U.S. universities as an international
1: student. Hi, Vicki. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing well. Super excited to be on the podcast. Big fan. Long time. Could you start off by just telling us a little bit more about yourself? Of course. So I was born and raised in Honduras in Central America. My family is still there. I grew up in a big family with three sisters. So I went to a bilingual school back in Honduras and I graduated with a Honduran and a U.S. high school diploma from that school. So that, of course, made it a lot easier for me to apply to U.S. schools because it was a lot easier for the schools to be able to understand what my classes looked like, what they were. And of course, I had all of the requirements that I needed. So after high school, I went and I got my undergrad at BU up in Boston. And then I worked for a year with my OPT. And after that, I transferred into a joint program between FIU and Miami at school for my master's down in Miami, where I am currently living. So I graduated from my master's in 2019 and I've been working in advertising and marketing ever since.
0: And did you always know that you wanted to go to school in the States?
1: Uh, So short answer is yes kids that go to my school pretty much know that you're going to go abroad to study. So if you want anything that's basically not law or medicine, the States is sort of the easiest and most accessible place to study abroad. It's really common for kids from my school specifically to come to the States. So because we graduate with this high school diploma, you, you kind of just get it essentially drilled into you since you're young. You know, you know all about the APs, SATs, even when you're in middle school, I would say. And then, yeah, we just basically have all of the american slash college tests that are required by schools in the states administered at the school so it just becomes way easier and yeah i always had american and canadian teachers so i was very familiar with what the system looked like here you know they told us all about like what what school was like for them so apart from that the u.s is just them simply put the closest place to honduras that you where you can really get a quality education so it just makes the most sense And on top of that, my grandpa went to MIT, uncles, cousins, all of us have always gone to either Boston or towns around Boston. So it's almost like a tradition. But I will say, though, my country is particularly Americanized. So it's possible that this is not the case in other countries. And I actually do know for a fact that, for example, students from Mexico, students from Brazil, because there are better schools in their countries, it's not as common to know that you're going to leave from such a young age.
0: And how prepared did you feel you were regarding the college admissions process specifically in the U.S.? Were there any kind of knowledge gaps that you discovered or did you feel really pretty prepared?
1: I would say definitely underprepared compared to kids here. So I specifically sought out a lot of help for college admissions because I knew that my parents were going to be busy. And my older sister had a little bit of I don't want to say a hard time, but she was definitely overwhelmed and confused. So I saw it coming and I, you know, I sought out, like I, I specifically went and like scheduled appointments with our counselor and I tried to learn more from an, sort of an earlier age. I also did a couple of summer programs that had college prep classes before. I think I, d- I did one after sophomore year and then one after junior year. So that was also super helpful. But yeah, I would say that the schools in general don't put sort of an emphasis on the importance of really getting into a good school. Like they will, at least my school, they provided us with the, you know, the essay, you had the SAT, you had the TOEFL, everything at the school. But then if you want to get into a good school, if you want to write, like, you know, have a really solid essay, a really, really good application, that's completely up to you. My school, although it's very good, it definitely isn't prepared to offer that kind of assistance to students. So I would say that it is a lot harder. It is a lot more competitive. There are pros and there are cons, obviously, but I would say that we are at a disadvantage.
0: And now in hindsight, especially regarding your work here, do you feel that you kind of made any major mistakes or even any small mistakes? I know even I went to an American school in the States, but there are things and I'm like, wait, why did my college counselor tell me that? Like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did some of those things. How did I even get into college?
1: Definitely. So I have a young sister that is in her freshman year of school right now. And I actually did have her work with us and it is such a difference, Ellen. Like I remember my own process and even my, so I have two younger sisters. I remember the sister after me's process and it was such a different experience to my sister who worked with Ingenia. So just having that knowledge, like having that there's no way for a student to know that stuff unless somebody tells them that, right? So it's really about like finding yourself an expert that can guide you through it. I would say that in my, in my personal opinion, one of the biggest, biggest things, apart from of course, creating a much stronger application is just the stress that it takes away knowing that you're working with an expert and that you're being guided in the way that you should be guided. So yeah, all in all, I would say that just not, Seeking out the resources that were available at the time was a big mistake. And frankly, I just wouldn't have known to look for, I didn't know to look for them. And I wish that my school had told me, you know, I wish that maybe my friends had more of an experience, more experience. And just, yeah, just like looking back and knowing that that support is out there and you just need to look a little harder to find it basically.
0: And so how do you recommend students, if they are trying to do this process independently, how do you recommend that they kind of start the research process? And when should they start this process as international students?
1: So that's a really good question. I would say if a student knows that they want to go to an international school, that's definitely something they want to start thinking about from the start of high school. So the reason why is because you want to make sure that you're really, really performing at the top of your game, especially in the school, in the classes that are requirements from the United States. So like, to give you an example, I had to take U S history and I also had to take history of Honduras. So U S history, my grade in U S history is obviously looked at a lot more closely than my grade of hi- in history of Honduras. And in fact, it is weighted in my, it was weighted in my transcript. So these things are, you know, just knowing what you're getting into, knowing that your final goal is coming to a really good school. That should, that should always be in mind. So the classes that you pick, and I will say there's not as much liberty usually in like choosing your curriculum in other countries, but you so, you sometimes do have a, a chance. So, like the classes that you pick, the extracurriculars that you get involved in, um, you know, any internships or anything. Just like knowing that you have this goal, I think is super, super, super important. Of course, it's really difficult to ask a young kid, especially somebody who doesn't even know that they might want to attend school in a different country, or specifically in the U.S., to know all of this beforehand. So. I would, in instead of encouraging the students to do the research, I would definitely encourage the parents. I would say, if your kid is in middle school, you know, just like start looking at options, start looking at what what does the process look like, what is this kid going to have to do. So, to give you an example, I made the mistake of taking my first SAT in the fall of my senior year. I absolutely wish that I would have taken that in my junior year. That's something that I would have known had I had the guidance. So just things like this, you know, something that I should have done would would have been simply to reach out to the schools. To, I had specific questions about, you know, international things like I, 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 I wish I would have known that the International Students and Scholars Office at BU, for example, is such a fantastic resource, even for incoming students, for applicants, like you can call them and ask questions and get all of these questions answered.
0: And how did the process itself of you applying to colleges, how did
1: that differ for you as an international student? So that is not that different. That, that I would say my school had a really good, so it was very much built into the process. I remember, you know, we had a high school counselor called Ms. Bowen. She was American. I, I will note like specifically, I did have the privilege of going to this specific bilingual school. So I had that access, but the the process itself is not all that much different. The application itself is not all that much different, but there are added steps that Americans don't need to do. So the application, right? You have to write the, the same essay. The questions are the same. Basically, the only thing that is different is essentially your demographics and then that you have to submit proof of English. So generally students will take the TOEFL, which is a standardized test that scores your skills in English. And it's a good way for schools just to make sure, you know, that you can take a full course load in English and keep up, right? So that is different in terms of like the prep leading up to. And then after you get your acceptance is when things get different. So after you get your acceptance, you and your school will communicate about something called an I-20. And essentially that is a document that the school will provide to you. It's basically your passport from your school that says that you are a student at that school. And that document allows you to get a student visa. So once you get that I-20 from the school, you know, you've you accepted the offer, you, you are preparing to go to your school, um, they'll send you the I-20 and then you'll need to schedule an appointment at an American embassy or consulate in your country and go for an interview. And during that interview, they'll decide whether or not they'll grant you, or perhaps after, they will grant you a student visa. So that part of it is very time consuming. It can be expensive and that Americans don't have to worry about. So that part of the process is definitely something that you want to research quite a bit about. It's not something that the school is going to hold your hand through, so you really do need to be prepared for it. Once you get through all of that stuff, there are things, it's not quite the application process, but there are things that you need to keep in mind being an international student. So The financing stuff gets a little bit, you know, it's a a big point of a discussion for international students, though, of course, if you have scholarships and all that good stuff, there are schools that not all schools offer scholarships to international students first off, but the ones that do can be pretty generous. So highly encourage everybody, any student to look, look those up. There's usually you can find lists of schools that offer scholarships to international students online. Usually. For schools that don't offer international student scholarships, they require international students to pay full tuition.
0: And since this process is so much more competitive for international students, how do you recommend they go about building their school list, particularly to make sure that they have enough safety schools and target schools and particularly to kind of, you know, weigh what is a reach school for them versus what would a reach school be for an American with the same numbers?
1: So that's a really good question. So first off, I think it's important for everybody to understand really what the differences are between the different schools that you need to have in your school list, right? So first off, you need to have a third of REACH schools. So REACH schools are where the scores of the incoming students or the, av- the average scores of the incoming freshmen are higher than your scores are. Uh, it could also be just basically any top money school or any school with uh, an acceptance rate below, I think 15% would be considered a REACH school. So anything, you know, Ivy League, any top 10 programs, any top 20 programs, those are schools, no matter who's applying. Then there's target schools where your scores, they're essentially similar or fall very closely to the average entrant. And then these safety schools are schools where your scores are higher than that of the average freshman. So you should have about a third of each, And I would say that for international students, specifically percentages, it's probably best for you to have a little bit more target and safety schools if you, are, if you do really have your heart set on the state. So, you know, I hate to say it, but it is a little bit of a game of chance and like just playing your odds. So if you're sure, if, and if you're absolutely sure that you want to come here, and if you do have... To apply for scholarships, then you need to be very aware that the odds of acceptance are lower. In addition, depending on the country that you're applying from, competition can just be way, 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 way higher. So for example, I know that our kids that are applying from China, the competition for international applicants coming from China, specifically in top 30 programs, is a lot. So you are competing against the best of the best and you just have to be realistic about your chances and realistic about what your application looks like. Services like ours and, you know, other consulting services and other college counselors can really help give you a realistic idea of what your chances look like. You know, we as a rule here in Genius, we don't give any odds, but we would be able to tell you like, all right, so this would be a reach for you. This would be a target for you. And we can help help you have realistic expectations, which I do think is important when you are considering a school list. You know, even if you are the top student at your school, I, I specifically know valedic orients that graduated from my school. And I I I think it's important to mention that my school is considered one the school that I went to, the high school that I went to is considered one of the top schools in the country. And the valedictorians from my school still didn't get into you know top programs. I know one kid that got into Harvard, uh, the valedictorian in my year, went through Vanderbilt and they didn't get into Ivy's. And then that's that very common. I mean, they're competing against the best of the best. And sometimes our schools simply can't compete against other better equivalents here in the States or in other countries.
0: And in your experience, are international students and their families sometimes kind of focused on the kind of the same schools, like, you know, the Ivies, the top 30s versus... If this is true, like how can they kind of expand their horizons and find some of these hidden gems, like maybe some liberal arts colleges, some state universities that are highly
1: ranked so that they're not constantly all applying to the same schools? So that's a really fantastic point. Something that happens in my experience a lot with international students is that we h- would tend to hear a lot about the same schools. And it's usually just like the really prestigious programs, right? So engineering kids will have heard of Caltech, MIT. And then, you know, marketing kids will have, her, or business kids will have heard of Wharton. But then you don't hear about these, as you call them, hidden gem schools. We like to call them that at So there are a lot of schools that go sort of, you don't even hear about them, I would say. You know, your teachers aren't telling you about them. You're, you just don't hear about them. And... If you look at the rankings, if you look closely, those schools are there. You know, these are top 30 schools that don't have a lot of international students applying to them just because they may not be a super big name that their parents were aware of. To give you an example, like it could be anything. So my advice to that is just take a look at the rankings. So if you're interested in an engineering program, for example, you will have heard of these top ten STEM schools. You'll hear about MIT, you'll hear about Stanford, but then you might not have, have heard of the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign, for example, which is a top 10 program. It's a fantastic, fantastic engineering school. And you just may not be familiar with it. So just look at the rankings, check out what the best schools are for your programs of interest, and then just take a chance on them, right? Go into their profiles, make sure that you're reading about the school. So don't apply just because it's a prestigious program look into the school, look at what the courses are like, look at what the culture of the school is like, and make sure that you're considering that as you're building your school list.
0: Are there quotas or other additional barriers that we haven't discussed yet for international students?
1: I would say yes. So probably the biggest barrier is going to be that whole visa thing that we discussed and then financing. So Financing is a big thing for a lot of international students, specifically because we don't have access to the FAFSA. uh, You don't get government aid. And then, of course, as I mentioned before, not all schools give scholarships to international students. So it is more common for students to get merit scholarships than it is for them to get financial aid scholarships, essentially. And again, just make sure that you're that you're specifically researching which schools are going to be able to assist you with this. So if you know that you need a scholarship to attend school, it's not worth applying to a school that is not going to give you an, that simply doesn't give scholarships to international students. So just make sure that you're doing a lot of good research there. Be realistic, talk to your parents. And actually, you know, this is one thing that I learned at my time at BU. Uh, I worked in the student, I worked in in a, in a student role there. And I talked to the Dean a lot and something that happens a lot is that students get absolutely enamored with the school. And then the parents will let them go into a ton of debt to go to that school. And sometimes that's not worth it. So, you know, talk to your kids, be realistic, set goals that the whole family is okay with and make decisions together and make educated decisions so apart from financing, I would say that the visa thing is the biggest barrier. It, it, there's just so many steps and like, you don't know why, like it's absolutely subjective. Like even if you get, you know, you could get into Harvard and you could get the I-20 from Harvard and they would send that to you and you would go into your interview. And then if the person interviewing you at the embassy there, is, just happens to be in a bad mood. You may not get the visa. It like, gets super, super specific to every student. And then of course it's different From embassy to embassy, from country to country. It is a different experience for every student. It is, I mean, don't get me wrong, it's similar and you you have to go through the same steps, but it is so subjective. It is so dependent on the, it it could even be the weather of the day, right? This is such a personal process, whether or not you get a visa. So again, just hedging your bets. Um, You know, I knew that I was applying to schools in the U S so I applied to a little bit and I knew that I wanted to come here. So I applied to a little bit more schools than I usually, or that I I originally had on my school list, just because I wanted to have more safeties on there. And then I know that there's students that apply to schools in the U S but they also have applications into Canadian schools or Mexican schools or like schools in Europe because they know that it's, it's not a sure thing. So that I would say is the biggest barrier is that even if you get the acceptance, even if you get into the top top program, there's still a literal obstacle in your way that you have to get through. And it's probably the most important one. And did you
0: consider applying to any other schools abroad, such as in Europe, Asia, Australia?
1: So I did. I thought about it for a while. Specifically, I really thought that I was going to apply to schools in London and in Canada. Ultimately, I didn't end up doing that one because I figured between London and Boston, I would rather apply to Boston. So I just applied to more schools there. And then and, which is wild to think about, right? <laughs> and then I think I did apply to one Canadian school, but it I, I made the mistake of not really re- researching this school before I applied. So I just threw it in as like a last minute safety. And, you know, I would say this is, I definitely didn't approach my school list the way that I should have back in the day. So I didn't think, what do I really see myself at every single one of these schools, which is something that you should be thinking about. You shouldn't apply to a school that you don't see yourself going to. All you're doing is taking a spot away from somebody else if you're not going to use it. So, you know, even your safeties, make sure that you look into them and that you would be happy going there and that you would be, that you would be good going to that school. Otherwise it shouldn't make it onto your school list. So I had that one Canadian school that shouldn't have made it into my list because I knew that I wanted to go to the States and that, you know, it was going to do anything and everything that I needed to, to go to school where I wanted to.
0: How was the process different if it was different when you were applying to graduate programs here in the States?
1: That is a really good question. So something that I learned uh, that was a wonderful surprise for me was that I didn't actually need to reapply for an I-20 and a student visa because I already had my I-20 from my undergrad. So I'll give you a little bit of a background information here. After you graduate from a degree program, specifically, I believe it's undergrad, grad, and then PhD programs that qualify and then any, any higher education. But essentially, once you get your degree, you get a year to work after your schooling. It's called optional practical training, which is known as OPT. So any international student that's listening, you may have heard about it. And if you haven't, I highly encourage you to start reading a little bit about it. But basically... It's your chance to work in an actual work setting, you know, get a real job with employment authorization from the U.S. government. So that's not something that you can do on a student visa. And that's something really important to know is that you can only get approved jobs with your student visa so I worked a job at school but it meant that I had to you know go get my I had to get a special permission in order to get a social security number and my school was super involved I had to sign a lot of paperwork with the international students and scholars office and I couldn't take any work off campus so the OPT is super important it's super cool because it does give you that advantage like you could you essentially can work wherever you want as long as it as long as the role has something to do and is still directly related with your major so for example, I graduated with bachelor's of science and communication with a concentration in advertising. So I had to do something that was advertising or marketing related, right? So I went and I started working at an advertising company after I graduated and I worked there for a year. And then after about six months of working there, I decided that I wanted to apply to grad school. I reached out to BU because I'm under the OPT, you technically are still a student at, your, at the school that you graduated from. So I reached out to the International Students and Scholars Office at BU. I asked them what I, would, what I should do, and they were able to guide me through the process. And essentially, while you're on your OPT team, it's basically a transfer. So you transfer your I-20 from, I specifically transferred my I-20 to the school here in Miami, and it was a super, super, super smooth experience. I am super happy that I learned about it and that it was that easy for me. So I didn't have to go you know, to the embassy. I didn't have to go to the consulate to reapply for any of that. So if we have any international students here that are interested in higher education, I highly suggest that you look into this. And then our STEM kids that get the STEM extension, it, you, you have even more time between your your undergrad or your grad program.
0: And what surprised you about college life in America once you started and what do you think international students really need to know about just different culture shocks and things to expect?
1: So I love that question. Um, and I would say that my answer is always the weather. Oh my God, the weather. I was not prepared. I and the, you know, I had been to the cold before, but living in the cold is quite different. I would also say that the, the daylight savings was quite a shock for me. I didn't realize what a difference that hour would make, especially in the winter. So, you know, I'm from the tropics. I had never seen a sunset before like five or six, five thirty or six p.m. And here I was leaving class at three. And then, sorry, entering class at three, leaving at 430 and the sun was gone. So that was super shocking to me. It was definitely something to get used to. I would also say that you have to work hard to make friends. So I know that that sounds a little bit weird, but it's the truth. Like you, you know, you, you've known your friends from home from for forever, but these are new people, right? These are students that are new. They're also trying to make friends. So just put the work in, basically put the effort in. I'll say at my school, at BU, there was this uh, sort of a weird culture among international students that it was kind of uncool to join extracurriculars, unless you were joining with your friends, right? So I remember like a lot of Latin students, for example, would join like the Latin student organizations, but then pretty much nothing else. So you know, I had a friend who was a phenomenal singer and she never joined any of all of the really popular acapella troupe on campus. So things like that, like give things like that a chance. I think it's really important, especially for us as international students, part of this incredible experience of coming abroad to study is to really meet different people, right? Like that's part of the magic. So if you are, you know, willing don't only stick to people like you, you know, have your friends and 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 have your your people like you because that's always really nice and it's really comforting and you can, you know, support each other through this interesting experience of getting used to a different place, but also experience people from other cultures. That's incredible. That's an amazing part of coming to an international school or being an international student at, a, at an American school. Of course, there's always going to be culture shock. I remember, you know, a big thing for me, this, this is so silly, but tipping is... tips are included in the check where I'm from. So basically they'll like tack on an 18% service charge to any time that you go to a restaurant. So coming here and having to like do the math of tipping and like not being used to that. I remember, you know, one time I tipped, like I think it was like a 10% tip and I, I just genuinely didn't know any better. And my friend happened to be friends with the person who waited on us that time. And he corrected me. He was like, hey, that's a really bad tip. So then I, I, you know, I was lucky because I could correct the check right then and there, but it's things like that. Like just general culture shock. Like I had never ridden in taxis and like Ubers as much as I did when I was in school. That was super common. Getting used to the train was a big adventure for me as well. So yeah, I mean, just, just make sure that you have something that I did that helped me was I made sure that I had like snacks from home that I liked. I made sure that I talked to my parents and then I made sure that I had friends that were similar to me because that does make you feel better but you'll be fine. Culture shock is just for a little bit. And it's quite an interesting experience. It's not necessarily negative. And then the last thing that I would say is I specifically had a very, I don't want to say sheltered, but my school was very on top of us. Like if you weren't doing your homework, you know, kids that weren't doing their homework our teachers would be super on top of them because they had known them for a million years right so what 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 teachers say about college professors not looking out for you and you having to do your work by yourself like you having to remind yourself and keep track of your syllabus by yourself is absolutely true I was super used to teachers being very like Hey, have you done this? You know, I remember one time I was sick and I didn't go to school, which was uncommon for me. And my AP Spanish teacher emailed me, asking me if I was okay because she didn't see me there. She she was like, "Are like, what is this? This is weird, right?" So this is the relationship that I had with my teacher. So imagine when I went to school and I was in, you know, six hundred person seminar. And of course, my teacher didn't know my name. So put in the work. You want to have a relationship with these professors. Go to office hours. They are there for a reason. Use Your professors are going to be brilliant people. Like even if you are fine with understanding the coursework, go, go and talk to them. Pick their brain. They're incredibly interesting people.
0: Did you have reverse culture shock when you returned home for breaks?
1: Yes, I did. Absolutely. So something that happened for me specifically, so BU is a very liberal school, right? There's so much, like, I loved that. I absolutely loved that. There's so many conversations that are just so important to have, especially coming from a culture that is a lot more backwards than I wish it were. So, you know, I am so much more liberal than my peers. I have such, my my parents call me um, like, they call me a tree hugger. So going to BU, you know, like having all these incredible conversations, changing my opinions on a lot of things and just learning way more, becoming a lot more educated and just a lot more conscious of so many things that I hadn't even, that I wouldn't have known to consider before. So once you essentially open your mind and then you go back and you hear all of these, like, I remember, you know, just listening to people make jokes that like didn't land right. It was like, oh no. So that was probably the biggest culture shock. Just like, you know, you're, you're coming back with these big ideas and, and completely change your mind about a lot of other things. And then going back and like listening to people who have yet to experience, you know, these things and like listen to these ideas is, it can be quite shocking for sure. And, uh, what, like I, I returned home with a couple of piercings and my mom kind of flipped out. So it just, just remember that like you are, you are going to change, but it's okay. It's usually for the best and just talk to your parents, talk to your family, just make sure that they know what they're getting back and that you're still you, I guess. Like it can be interesting conversations when you get home
0: I stayed abroad for six months in New Zealand, and I had like a surprising amount of reverse culture shock when I came back. I was like, I'd go to the grocery store and like start bagging my own groceries, and they'd be like, "What are you doing?" I would walk on like the left side of the sidewalk and walk it walk into people every time I would like make a turn. I couldn't remember which side of the road to drive on.
1: Yeah, little things like that. Yeah. I remember, so where I'm from, you dress up for everything, right? So like as soon as you, there, like you never wear flip-flops, for example, in like a day-to-day unless you're going to the beach or whatever. And I remember that I I used to like full-on put like dress up to go to the grocery store just because you would always run into somebody that you knew. So I remember my first weekend in Boston, my roommate was from North Carolina And I remembered she said, hey, I'm going to the grocery store. Do you want to come with? And I said, okay, just give me a second to change. And I remember she was wearing sweats and and she was like, wait, why are you changing? I was like, well, we're going to the grocery store. And I was like full on putting on jeans, like boots, you know, a little bit of makeup and the grocery store was a half a block away and she's just watching me do this. And she's like, why are you doing that? It's just the grocery store. And then so that kind of a thing I definitely stopped doing. And then when I went back home, I remember I, I was wearing a pair of rubber Birkenstocks. And I was taking my little sister to the grocery store and she couldn't believe it. She was in shock. She couldn't believe that I wasn't dressing up to go to the grocery store. So yeah, definitely, definitely reverse culture shock is a real thing, but it's just part of the adventure. I I find it funny and entertaining and just leads to interesting and entertaining conversations.
0: Looking ahead, how can international students maximize their chance of
1: getting a work visa after graduation? It's really, really, really hard is the first thing that you should know. There is no sure thing. It's never, ever a sure bet for anybody. So make sure that you're following all of the rules make sure that th- th- that's the single most important thing. If you want to get a work visa, if you want to get an OPT, if you want to get anything, any benefits like that, make sure that you follow all of the rules of your the conditions of your visa to the letter. So to give you an example, if you ever get caught drunk driving on a student visa, it'll immediately be revoked. So you can't break any rules like that. Um, if you have any any days in the States where you, where you like came in with a different visa or like uh, if you stayed longer than you should have, anything like that, like all of those rules just make sure that you are following them very, very closely. That's the most important thing. And then the second thing is just like you have to, you have to basically prove that you are ha- more qualified than anybody that they can hire who's American. So, that is the condition for a work visa. And you can imagine how difficult that is. So, yeah. Make sure that you do all of the OPT, all of those things. So the application, getting your passport photos taken, all of that stuff. Make sure that you do them on time and that you're doing them as they should be done. So you can definitely lean on the International Students and Scholars Office at your school. They should guide you through this process. And if they don't have the staff, then they should at at the very least have some sort of, you know, literature that can help guide you. However, parentheses there. Definitely ask them to guide you though, because this should be part of their services. Um, So yeah, remember that you can only apply to jobs that fall under your category of study. So, you know, if you got a degree in in hospitality, then you have to do something that's related to hospitality. If you got a degree in engineering, you have to do something that's related to engineering. So once you graduate, you need to find a company to hire you, which can be really hard to get a job as an OPT because people know that you're just going to be there for a year and they don't want to, you know, spend all this money and, and time training you for you just have to leave after a year that is a little bit easier for STEM students because they have that three-year extension. So they know that they'll have you for a while. So what, if you are lucky and you get a job um, you know, on your OBT, and it also doesn't, doesn't have to be a paid job. You can also do, it also doesn't even have to be a full-time job. You can also do part-time and you can do um, internships as long as they're directly related to your field of study. So if you're lucky, if you're one of the lucky ones and you found a company that wants to hire you, And then you do really well, let's say that you work there and they love you and they don't want to let you go, they may be willing to sponsor you. So somebody does have to sponsor you for you to apply for a work visa. So basically the company has to say, hey, government, we really, really want this person. Here's the application. They're going to work at this company. So you can pay your own legal fees, which is nice. So they don't technically literally have to sponsor you, but just ask them see if they're open to sponsoring you that way. Obviously, it's, it's easier for you if the company covers the costs. So once you have your application in, it's really important to know that it's a lottery thing. So not all of the applications even make it to somebody's desk to be looked at. So if they have 10 applications from undergrads, Only 25% will actually make it onto somebody's desk to be open and looked at. So it's completely a lottery thing. So if you are within those 25%, that means that your application is going to be opened by an officer and it'll be read, but they can still say no. And it is still very, very, still very difficult to get past all of those requirements for you to get hired. So it's really hard to get an H-1B period. But it's harder to get an H-1B as an undergrad graduate than it is when you're a master's student. So as I mentioned, only 25% of applications for undergrad H-1Bs get to somebody's desk. In comparison, 50% of applications for master's students get onto somebody's desk. So your is literally double. So it is, you know, if you're interested in going to higher education anyways, consider that, consider doing your undergrad, a year of OPT, and then grad school, and then applying because your chances are going to be a lot higher. So after, you know, if, if if you qualify, if all of that is true for you, then you still, that application still has to prove that you are valuable and unique. So you have to work really hard and show, you have to work basically harder than your American peers to make yourself valuable and unique. So lean into your unique perspective as an international student, because that can really help. So to give you an example, I have a friend who is a graphic designer here in Miami, and she got her H-1B specifically because she speaks Spanish and English, and she can design, add In Spanish that are very like she she is specifically designing ads in Spanish that are targeted towards Central American market here in the state. So she has that specific point of view, right? This friend of mine is from El Salvador and she speaks Spanish and she knows the slang and she knows the culture. So she can create this work and it's very specialized and it's not something that an American peer could do. So she leaned into this and it really, you know, this was the case that she made and it works for her. So lean into that, right? So it is a unique perspective. It is something that you're offering this company that they're not going to be able to get elsewhere. So make that part of why you're valuable. Do you have any other words of wisdom for our listeners? The truth of the matter is that an American education can really change your life. So degrees from good school, good schools especially american schools that are so prestigious are respected anywhere you go they can help you open doors all over the world and that's really something that's incredibly incredibly valuable it is something that you know coming i my is a third world country you know an education really can be the single most important thing that you can get so just be aware of that and appreciate it i would say Do your research. You can get a degree from a really good school that you may not have heard of, but other people in the world may have. So remember that those hidden gems are the ones you want to be looking for. Again, that just takes me to don't discount schools that you haven't heard of. Look at the rankings, read about schools. Your peers not applying to those schools are something that actually works in your favor because your most direct competition is the students that are applying from your school. So if you apply to less of the schools that your peers are applying to, you're going to have better chances of getting it. And then again, just repeating myself again, just learn uh, learn about this process as much as you can before you go into it. So go into it prepared. You know, if you are doing it with your parents, make sure that your parents are also informed. This is a big thing. It is something that is a huge, huge part of your, obviously it's the single most important part of your life for four years. It means traveling. It means leaving your country. Talk to your family. Everybody should like, Make sure that they're aware of what this process is gonna look like, What, what how you're gonna need your parents' help, for example, or your partner or guardian. And just be prepared. Read, start reading early. If we have any parents in the audience, start reading about it. I highly encourage you guys to check out our blog. Uh, Start looking at just what it takes to get into these top programs. We also, for if we do have any parents in the audience, we have some fantastic resources of how to parent through admissions. So I highly encourage you all to take a look at those as well. But yes, my bottom line is research as much as you can before you start.
0: Thank you so much for joining us today, Vicki. I'm sure our listeners appreciate your insight into college admissions for international students. For more information, check out our blog linked in the episode description. If you have a question or would like to request a topic for a future episode, go ahead and give us a follow and send us a message on social media with the hashtag #InsideAdmissions. That's all for now. Thank you for listening and I hope you'll join me next time as we continue our journey inside the admissions office.